Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Trisha Yearwood, and you're tuned to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with Bill McLaughlin. Before we turn to Bill and his guests, I just want to give a shout out to the entire Furniture Today team and remind you that when there's something exciting to announce, you'll read about it first in Furniture Today. And now, here's Bill McLaughlin and On the Record. Welcome to On the Record. I'm Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. My guest this week is Jonathan Johnson, CEO of Overstock.com. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So it is almost a year to the day. We're, we're only um, a few days away from the one-year anniversary of you being named uh, from interim CEO to CEO of Overstock.com. Um, and anybody who has followed the headlines on Overstock since that time will notice a very steady progression of changes and improvements. Um, and I'd like to talk to you about how you've kind of approached the job over the past year. And um, I'd like to talk to you about that in a concept. I understand that you are um, a proponent of a concept called commander's intent. And maybe you can explain that before we go into that. But I think that provides an interesting context for looking at some of the changes that you have instituted and some of the results that you've gotten as a result over the last year. So can you share with our, re- our listeners when you talk about commander's intent, what do you mean, and how do you think that that applies for, to the changes that you've made in Overstock over the last year? Well, what a great question to, to start off with, Bill. Thank you. So in the military, there's this notion of commander's intent where the commander gives his or her team the intent of what he wants done. Take this hill for example. Then in the military, they'll have a detailed execution checklist that says just how to take the hill. Go through this field, cross the bridge, take the hill, assault it from the north, and get to the top of it. The team knows that when they're in the heat of battle, if crossing the bridge is difficult or taking it from the north is impossible, that the intent of the mission is to take the hill. And so they can leave the execution checklist and take it from the right, from the east to the west. They might parachute down. They might burrow up from underneath. The goal is to take the hill. Uh, how does that apply in business? I, I think it really differentiates between what the two types of work that organizational behaviorists talk about. There's controlled work or red work where we follow processes. And this is the height of the Industrial Revolution. We sit at a desk, we do what we're told, we do just what we're told, and we only do what we're told. Then there's blue work or creative thinking where we're given control and we're told what the objective is and we figure out how to get there. All of us every day do a little bit of red work where we follow processes and a little bit of blue work where where we have creative thinking. Commander's intent, I think, is to unleash more creative thinking. Let us do more creative 
glue work ourselves to solve problems where they exist, where the boots are on the ground. I hope that makes some sense. It absolutely does. So let me ask you then in the context of when you took over as CEO last year at Overstock, what was the commander's intent? What was the hill that you asked your team to take? Well, uh, again, another another good question. Before I answer, let me kind of tell you what I found when I became the CEO. We had a two-decade-long founder-CEO leave, great business partner of mine. I learned a lot and became a, a much better businessman working at his side. But when I joined, when I took over the helm at Overstock, and particularly when I sat in our e-commerce executive meeting, I saw that a lot of people at the table were looking to where I was sitting to make decisions. And with a founder CEO, I think we had a tendency to always look to him to be the final decision maker. He had made all the decisions when we were a fledgling startup, and he was able to make any decision uh, up till the day he left. I, I knew I was capable of making decisions. Um, but I felt it was important to nurture the team to have the confidence so that they understood the objective, that they were confident and competent to make their own decisions. And the first objective, uh, the first really two objectives we had were to make sure that the e-commerce business knew that it was the crown jewel of everything Overstock does. The e-commerce business is the engine that drives what we do with blockchain and other things. And so the ultimate objective, and it's an objective that I say in every meeting that I'm in, is Overstock must achieve sustainable, profitable growth. And every time I say it, I say it just that slowly. And that is given us, that's our commander's intent. How do we grow? How do we do it in a way that's sustainable and profitable? Uh, we've got specific objectives underneath that, uh, but I think that's been commander's intent from the beginning. I'd like to talk about those words because I, I have noticed that in every conference call, in every earnings release, in every conversation that you have, that you you use that exact phraseology. And if I can steal your own phrase, you are, as you have described yourself, a recovering lawyer, um, which means that words matter a great deal. So explain exactly when you say sustainable, profitable growth what exactly that means and why it's so important to emphasize it exactly that way. So there's a lot, there are a lot of people in business that have figured out how to grow. Uh, they can spend a lot on advertising. They can uh, provide a lot of couponing. They can drive customers to their sites and grow. One of our competitors does that and loses money year after year after year. Uh, that's really not sustainable unless you've got deep-pocketed investors who will do it forever. Uh, we want to grow, but it needs to be sustainable. The only way we can grow and, and be sustainable is to do so in a profitable way. Uh, there are other businesses that say, 
we're going to be profitable. We spent a lot of money on marketing. Now we're going to stop that spending, uh, and we're going to reap the rewards of the work we've done. And they can make a lot of money while they shrink because their cost, while they shrink the top line because their their cost structure has gone way down. I don't want Overstock to be a business that shrinks, and I don't want Overstock to be a business that can't make money. So we have to figure out how to grow and be profitable. We have to do that in a way that we can do it this week, this month, this year, next year, and into the future forever. Now, I've heard you talk in, in other conversations um, and this seems to be a, kind of a hallmark of your management strategy. It is um, very much about empowering people, but it's also about transparency. And I want to go back to um, prior to, and I'd love to talk about your, your most recent earnings, which were just phenomenal. But even before you announced your second your uh, quarterly earnings, you took a somewhat unusual step of giving some early guidance about a month or two before. Um, that's, that's not always all that common unless somebody is trying to prepare Wall Street for negative news. You actually were preparing for something just the opposite, but there seemed a, a concerted effort to, to provide a higher level of transparency. What was the thought process? And then I'd love to talk about how you, how you racked up those numbers. I have three written objectives as the CEO of Overstock. Uh, they're on my wall. I look at them all the time. They're published on our internal intranet, so my colleagues at Overstock can see them whenever they want. One of them is to communicate who we are as a company to our employees, our shareholders, and our other stakeholders. I've got key results, metrics I have to measure myself on how I'm doing on that objective. Uh, it's important for me to be very transparent on what we're doing. What we're doing when we have bad news, what we're doing when we have good news. And I'll just give an example of each. When I first became CEO and had to stand up in front of our company, one of the first questions I was asked was, my employees was, Jonathan, are we gonna get bonuses at the end of the year? And I knew the answer everyone wanted to hear was yes, of course. But I knew the truthful answer was we hadn't accrued for bonuses. We weren't having that kind of year. And so I said, you know, my experience is when we don't accrue for bonuses, we don't pay for bonuses. We're not having the kind of year where we can give bonuses. We're going to put a plan together so that next year uh, we'll be in a position to pay bonuses based on good performance. That was disappointing to the people sitting in the room. But over the months since then, they have learned that I will give them bad news when it's the truth, and I'll give them good news when it's the truth. And today, when we have our quarterly stand-ups and I talk about what we're accruing for bonuses, there's a lot of good news. So I think communicating is important. Now, with shareholders, uh, before the second quarter, we entered the COVID period where everyone was sheltering from home. And the Securities and Exchange Commission came out with guidance, not rules, but guidance, saying that it was important for companies uh, to explain what the pandemic meant to their business. We could have waited uh, until we announced our second quarter earnings uh, and would have been, you know, well within the rules. Uh, 
Uh, but I felt it was important just because the pandemic was new and no one knew how it was affecting each and every business. We come out and say, here's what we're seeing because of the pandemic. Now, there's some certainty to our recent results, and there's a lot of uncertainty to where we go because the pandemic is a, is a brave new world we don't get. Uh, we, you know, we haven't done before, but I felt it was important to, to give the market, to give our shareholders uh, some more transparency because it's one of my objectives. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's talk about some fairly eye-popping numbers. Um, in the second quarter, you had total net revenue of $783 million, 109% year-over-year increase. Um, obviously, you're talking to a furniture publication. Please tell me that was driven by furniture. Uh, the, answer, the short answer is yes. And I will tell you, we are more, our, our, our goal is to provide dream homes for all. In the second quarter of 2019, about 85% of our revenue was driven by home furnishings. In the second quarter of 2020, about 93% of our uh, revenue came from home furnishings. So we are, we have been and are becoming more and more of a home furnishings company where we provide dream homes for all. Now, it wasn't just top-line revenue that, that improved. You also saw um, adjusted EBITDA uh, improve by $55 million year over year. Your net cash position improved. What are some of the things that um, the company is doing to help drive those results? Well, uh, I'll tell you this. When I became the CEO, first thing I did was take a look at uh, what initiatives we were working on at the e-commerce company. We had 27 key initiatives, each with an expected ROI. Uh, as you might expect, having 27 initiatives is almost like having no initiatives. It's just too many. And when I looked at the ROI, it was like having no initiatives. We weren't paying off. And so we spent the last half of last year, in 2019, deciding what we would focus on as a company, and we chose four initiatives. Improving our mobile experience, improving our discounting and pricing experience, improving the real-time data that we have to operate with internally, and then implementing a partner-related advertising program. We started that at the end of 2019, and we had definitions for what done would mean, we had expected ROI uh, for each of those broken out on a month-by-month basis. We were seeing improvements in the first quarter. In our fourth quarter of 2019, we shrunk 19%. In the first quarter, we just shrunk 6%, a significant improvement. Not yet sustainable, profitable growth, but on our way. Those improvements meant that when this huge tailwind from the stay-at-home mandates came in place, our operational muscles were strong. I fancy myself a cyclist. I'm an awfully fat and slow one. But I know when my legs are strong, I bite faster. I know when I have a tailwind, I bite faster. When I have both a tailwind and strong legs, that's when I really make up ground. 
that's where overstock is today. We've operationally improved, and we have this significant tailwind uh, of the stay-at-home mandate. So what do you do, if I can stick with the, the cycling metaphor, what do you do um, to sustain your strength, to sustain your legs, and to continue when you get to the other side of the track and the tailwind perhaps is not quite as um, as robust? Well, we know we know that growing at 100% year over year won't last forever. Um, you know, we'd like it to, but it wouldn't at some be point, nice. I think it, will, it wouldn't have been nice, but it will change. One thing we, we do see is the online home furnishing market has been, the home furnishing market has been migrating from brick and mortar to online about 1% to 3% a year for over a decade. And at the end of 2019, about 23% of home furnishings were purchased online. Um, the pandemic has changed that. Uh, we think it's high 30%, low 40% today. At some point, consumer behavior will change and there will be a tipping point where people are just comfortable purchasing home furnishings online. And if I, if I may, if we go back two decades ago, there was a company that said it would sell books online. And people said, no, that's about books online. You got to touch and feel a book. You got to read the dust jacket. You got to do whatever you do in a bookstore. Well, today, people, if they buy physical books, they buy them online. And that whole market has changed altogether. A decade ago, people wondered whether people would buy clothes on. You know, what will the color and the fit and the style, well, I really know it works. Well, Retailers got good enough at describing and merchandising the clothes and making returns easy enough that my wife even buys her swimsuits online now. I mean, such a difficult thing to buy that clothing has become something we buy online. Furniture is getting there. It has become much easier to see how it fits in your living room, the bedroom, wherever you want to have it, know the sizing, and the returning. The shipping, the return shipping has become so much easier. I think we're reaching a point where we're going to have a tipping point where consumer behavior will have changed. And they'll just be, online will be a much more natural way uh, to purchase furniture like it's a natural way to purchase clothing and like it's been a natural way for a long time to purchase books. So part of the thing that's facilitated that, I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, e-commerce first started and at the average website looked a lot like a catalog, only it was on a screen instead of something you held in your hand. Um, but when you look at the home furnishing shopping environment today and you look at the overstock experience, you're looking at um, a tremendous use of artificial intelligence. You're looking at much greater use of AR, perhaps eventually VR, what kind of um, evolution do you see and are you, are you doing at Overstock to facilitate that process that helps the consumer feel more comfortable shopping in that environment? Well, boy, we do a lot. And as I mentioned, our four initiatives for 2021 was to improve our mobile experience. Historically, for quite some time, we've had more than half of our traffic our website coming through mobile channels. 
never have we had half of our revenue come from mobile channels. It's always been desktop. People would look at the mobile site, but they'd ultimately do a double check and purchase when they were at a desktop. In the second quarter of 2020, for the first time, we had more than half of our revenue come in through mobile channels. We've made the mobile experience much easier. Finding products on your phone or your tablet has become as easy or easier than finding them on the desktop. We have a wonderful mobile app uh, that we we do have VR capabilities where you, know, you you take the the sofa that you see on our site and you can actually use your the phone to hold it up and show it in your room using the camera on your phone. So there are a lot of things where uh, we're working on to improve the experience, whether it's virtual reality, whether it's using machine learning and artificial intelligence to better uh, serve up products that you're interested in. If you're a shabby sheet purchaser, you'll see more of that. If you're a mid-century modern um, shopper, that's what you'll see. And so we spend a lot of time learning who you are, figuring out how to market to you, and then marketing in a way that's a really uh, easy experience for you to know what you're going to get so that you're not disappointed, so that you're thrilled when it shows up on your doorstep. Well, that was something, wasn't it? This is Tricia again for Klausner Home Furnishings. From my very first collection, I knew I'd come to the right place, that Klausner understood what I wanted to do with my furniture, how I wanted to share my recipe for comfortable living with the world. Now let's get back to Bill McLaughlin and see what he and his guests have to share with us. That seems to be, it's, it's an interesting thing for people of a certain age, that level of, um, shall we say, intuitive understanding of behavior is somewhat intimidating, right? For those of us who grew up in, um, in the era of reading 1984, it's like Big Brother is watching me. But for younger consumers, that ability to anticipate and satisfy their needs seems to be really appealing and almost something that they expect. Well, I think it is something they expect. And, and I'm old enough that I was a high school senior uh, in 1984. And of course, we read that Georgia Orwell book that year in my English class. Um, I do think people have come to realize that they are going to be served advertisements when they're on their phone, when they're on the on the searching the web. They would rather be things that are relevant to them than just what goes to the highest bidder. And if and uh, you know when when I surf the web, I I can tell where I've been because I can see what's following me. And frankly, I like that because it. It shows that it's more personal to me. Not everyone may feel that way, but I think more and more of society would rather have personalized marketing than just generic marketing. I, as, as someone who's gotten very accustomed to that, I have to I have to admit it's uh, it's quite convenient. I'd like to talk about another technology, which is um, blockchain. You're also the, the president of Medici Ventures. Um, which I understand draws its name in some ways from being the um, the Renaissance equivalent of innovations in bookkeeping. Um, maybe you'd like to tell that story and, and then talk a little bit about the role of blockchain. So the Medici family, uh, the lore tells us, brought double-entry bookkeeping accounting to the West. And because of that, they became great bankers, great merchants, 
and ultimately great benefactors to society. Blockchain technology is, in a sense, multiple entry uh, accounting. It's just is very simple. And so in a nod to what the Medici did in Florence centuries ago, we named our blockchain incubator Medici Ventures. If, if I could describe simply what blockchain, what the promise of blockchain is, I would go back to the early days of the internet. The internet. We used to call the internet the information superhighway because the internet made the transfer of information nearly free and frictionless. When we are transferring information on the internet, we're giving a copy. I send you an email or serve up a website or even send you a, a, a movie or a picture, you're getting a copy. Because it's information, we don't care. You don't care that you've received a copy. I don't care that you've got a copy. If it is an asset that we're transferring, you don't want a copy. You don't want a copy of my $20 bill. You don't want a copy of my vote. You want it spent just once. And so, free blockchain technology in order to transfer assets digitally, we've relied on intermediaries, expensive middlemen. Those might be brokers, they might be agents, they might be a government. Um, but there's someone in the middle, they might be a bank, you know, to say, yes, Bill, you're good for the money. You're going to have money to send to me when I send you a, a new area rug. Um, those middlemen at friction at the point of time, these mistakes sometimes and even mischief. Uh, blockchain technology might be called the digital asset superhighway. It lets us transfer assets, and I use that term very loosely. It could mean money, it could mean a stock certificate or land title or even a vote. Uh, it lets us transfer those to each other without knowing who we are without expensive middlemen in between. Now, that explains what it is. Can you give me an understanding of why it's important in the business as it relates to its connection to Overstock and as it will play a role in commerce, um, in e-commerce and digital commerce going forward? Well, we get asked that question a lot, and it's a very fair question. We are first and foremost an e-commerce company selling home furnishings. That's what Overstock is. But at our core, we are a technology company. When we started in 1999, e-commerce was cutting edge. That was a time when people were more comfortable talking to someone on the phone and giving their credit card information orally over the phone than they were putting it in a secure website. Uh, in the 20 years since our founding, 21 years now since our founding, we've tried to always be cutting edge on technology. When we saw and learned of blockchain now six years ago, uh, we began accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment. Bitcoin is kind of the first killer app built on blockchain technology. We wanted to accept it, one, to make it easier for people to buy, purchase stuff from us. Second, because we wanted to understand blockchain technology. How does it fit with e-commerce? Not a lot of ways with our business right now, but I do think a lot of ways in the future. I think it can improve the provenance of goods that we 
we know we're not selling fake goods. Uh, I think in the future, when there are recalls, uh, we'll know where goods came from. And we'll, you know, for example, you know, we've heard of lettuce recalls in the past year or so, and stores have had to recall all the lettuce they sold rather than just the lettuce from the contaminated field or the contaminated truck because it wasn't possible to track where things had come from. I think blockchain technology holds the promise of more people being involved in the digital uh, finance world. If you don't have a bank account, today you can't buy things online. Well, there's 8% of Americans who don't have bank accounts, but 70% of people in South America who don't have bank accounts. Blockchain technology allows for digital currency, which won't require a bank account. So I think there are a lot of ways it fits. We see it fitting because we're a technology company at our core that's mostly been manifest as an e-commerce business, but going forward, it will also be manifest in these blockchain businesses growing and succeeding. I've also heard people in the logistics business talk increasingly, and, and it's still kind of in its infancy there. Um, but in terms of the ability to track goods throughout the entire supply chain, there seems to be applications as well. Is that is that uh, something that you see going forward? Absolutely. A lot of that going forward. And we have two companies that are involved that we have ownership interest in that are in the supply chain business. One, one is a wine company. They are proving the provenance of the wine. Is that old bottle of wine really filled with old wine? Or are you... Or are you getting uh, uh, sold new wine in an old bottle for an extraordinarily high price? Um, we have another company we've invested in that is following, uh, it, it's called Grain Chain, and it, it allows farmers to know, uh, it allows grain elevators to know where the wheat or the grain has come from, and it allows farmers to be paid immediately when they deliver Grain. We hear of companies that are, are following from uh, purchase of materials to the uh, creation of the manufacture of a product to the shipping to it hitting the store to seeing it out the door. Being able to follow that whole piece of the supply chain, I think that's going to be wonderful for society to know the provenance of goods and where things are. Hmm. Yep. I'd, I'd like to kind of back up a little bit um, and go pre-overstock. You um, have a somewhat unique background um, for someone who heads an e-commerce or a retail company. Um, typically, people come up either through the financial side um, or the merchandising side. You actually began your uh, career in law and uh, clerked for uh, for a, a judge and uh, kind of started at Overstock as, as I understand by your own description, a uh, legal department of one. Um, how does, how did you make the transition from the legal side of the business to um, the position that you're currently in? What was that like? Well, was easier at Overstock, and I have to kind of have to go pre-Overstock to talk about the first transition. I did go to law school. I did clerk for a judge. I was a corporate attorney during mergers and acquisitions and corporate work. And about 20, uh, it must have been 22 years ago, I joined a software company 
to this general counsel, uh, at one point was asked to become a CFO. I was working closely with CFOs that had just left, and the board asked if I would replace that person. And I was very uncomfortable giving up my identity as a lawyer, something I'd worked at so hard. And I said no, was asked again, said no a second time, was asked a third time, and this time was told, please talk to the CFO at Merritt Corporation, who had been the general counsel. And I called him and he said, look, you can always go back to being a lawyer. If you get a chance to be in business, take it. And so I did, and I really enjoyed that job. When I joined Overstock, I was the legal department of one. Overstock had about 50 people at the time. But I knew that if the chance presented itself to put on a business hat, I wouldn't have to be asked twice again. And I had been with Overstock for oh, a matter of a few months when a project came across my desk to review a contract that was part of a, a larger request for proposal uh, from Paul, the folks that made Palm Pilots. Obviously, this is a long time ago when people didn't have smartphones and carried personal digital assistance. And I went to Patrick, our founder and CEO, and said, I would like to captain this project. And he said, well, what do you know about testing, marketing, warehousing, all the parts, pieces of the business that were part of it? And I said, I don't know a lot about any of those, but I'm, I know I'm naturally curious. I know I can bring the right team together. I know I can manage a team to do this. And he said, why don't you be the adult supervision on this project? We won the request for proposal. We had a bake-off with who Palm was using at the time. We won the bake-off, and we became the sole liquidator of Palm Pilots at the time. Patrick made me the fifth member of the executive team and asked me to hire another lawyer to do the legal work and to wear a business cap most of the time. And he didn't have to ask twice, but I quickly said yeah. It sounds like... There was a little bit of an underlying passion there that uh, perhaps you discovered something about your own interest in business once you got the opportunity to uh, test the waters, so to speak. Well, I did. And, you know, even as a lawyer, having business businessmen and women as clients, I could see that the problems they were solving, they got to see a deal at the beginning, see it through, and then see how build that deal to be something great. Whereas a lawyer, I was helping the purchase or helping the sale, and I get to see what happened afterwards. And that was really exciting to me. And it's one of the reasons I left private practice to go in house with the hope that something like that would happen for me. It's it's interesting that as I look at some of the things that Overstock has recently done, that so many of your early experiences seem to dovetail. For example, you just talk about talked about um, winning a bake off. For, for the palm business there. Um, Overstock recently was awarded a, a U.S. government contract um, as one of three online retailers offering B2B e-commerce capability to federal agencies. How, that's, how did you do that, and how is that going to work? So we are very excited about this. In August, we were, like you said, one of three vendors awarded the contract and a proof of concept pilot being done at the, for the federal government. They've got five or six agencies that they're creating a e-commerce platform so that procurement 
officers and buyers can make micro purchases, purchases less than $10,000 for things that those agencies need, things like equipment and office supplies, things that, you know, over furniture, things that Overstock provides. We got wind of it. I actually got wind of it when I was back in Washington on a, on a, a government relations project. Came back, told our team about it. We put our we threw our hat in the ring. There were scores of others that uh, the evaluating committee looked at. They narrowed it down to 18, and then down to six. And the final six of us went through a very rigorous uh, examination process and showing what we had to offer. We were one of three chosen. Um, we think we were chosen one because we've got a very strong distributed supplier network. Two, because we have a robust analytics dashboard and reporting system that's going to provide these agencies granular insight into their spending and whether they're buying from minority-owned, women-owned, veteran-owned businesses. And we think we want it third because of our uh, good supply chain and partner relationship. So there's a lot of potential here. Uh, I am. I like to describe myself as measuredly enthusiastic about this. I think selling to the government will be something new for us. We're going to figure out how it works. And if it works well, we think it could be a nice expansion on our business. And can you give me an, an understanding of how this is internalized? Um, because theoretically, it would seem that somebody at a government agency could just go on overstock and make a, make a purchase. But this is an actual separate marketplace that I'm presuming has some level of um, vetting and connection in advance that um, the kind of, I, I won't say short circuits, but takes into account all of the various kinds of requirements that government purchases have to go through. And, and kind of vets that process in advance. Do I understand that correctly? Or am I just completely off the you, 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 No, you do. And and the, I think what the General Services Administration is trying to do is streamline purchases. The fact that there's a title called procurement officer tells you that there's a bureaucracy in the government like, you know, only the government can build. Uh, and today, prior to this, a procurement officer couldn't have just gone to a website and made a purchase. There would have been uh, a bidding process, say, filling things out in triplicate, you know, this lots of red tape. What this proof of concept pilot does is it says these three companies, Amazon, Fisher Technologies, and Overstock, are on an e-commerce platform that's unique to the government. They've already been pre-approved. You can just go and buy something there. No more bidding process, no more triplicate, no more any of that. Um, and I think it's showing the attempts at efficiency uh, that the government's making. I think it's wonderful and that the government's doing that. I think it's even more wonderful that we were one of the uh, companies that was picked to supplies. Now, we do, as part of being on this platform, offer discounted pricing on this platform. The government does get a good deal. We do have white glove, dedicated customer care representatives who work just for this business to government uh, part of our business. So there is a separate side of the business we're building up 
to meet the government requirements. I don't know. I'm a little concerned. If this works, it's going to ruin an entire genre of jokes about government inefficiency. Oh, we can only hope, Bill. can only hope. Going to put a lot of late-night comedians out of work. It's, uh... <laughs> uh, with the current political process, I think there's no risk. <laughs> You're probably right. Now, speaking of political processes... Um, you yourself have have dabbled in the political arena um, and took a run at the governorship of Utah. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What what prompted uh, that career diversion? I was on a plane from Salt Lake to New York City reading a book that had been recommended to me from an author that I really like called Lead Accuracy putting leadership and democracy and jamming it into a portmanteau. Uh, that book said that the best, that good government leaders have learned to be leaders somewhere else. And it had a challenge at the end of the book. Sometimes if you feel like you're a problem solver and improved it in business or elsewhere, bring it to the public arena sometime. I came back from that business trip. I signed this certificate in the back of the book, and I told my wife about it. She looked at me like I was a cat that just dragged a mouse and put it on the hearth in the fireplace. I was expecting a, a pat on the head, and she was disgusted. Uh, but one thing led to another, and there was a time uh, when it felt natural to do that. And so uh, in 2015, 2016, I ran uh, a campaign to be the governor of Utah. Thankfully, uh, I lost. It was a wonderful experience. I think I'm a better communicator. I think I'm a better problem solver. I think I'm a better person and businessman because of it. Uh, but I'm glad I lost. And my wife has said, Jonathan, the next time you have a midlife crisis, let's go buy a red sports car. It'll be a lot cheaper and we'll get through it a lot more quickly. <laughs> I, I can imagine it would be cheaper. And, and you'd still have the car. <laughs> Yes. Uh, um, I, I know we're, we're coming to our time here, but I'd just like to, within the limits, um, because I know forward-looking questions are always problematic for public company CEOs, but in the big picture scheme of things, um, what does the future hold for Overstock? Well, I expect it to hold sustainable, profitable growth. Yeah. Uh, we expect to be focused on things that help us get there. You know, the, the four initiatives we worked on in 2020 were basic blocking and tackling of the retail business. The four or five initiatives that we'll select to work on in 2021 are probably the basic blocking and tackling of a retail business. There have been retailers since Kane opened the farmer's market and Abel had a slaughterhouse. Um, we will merchandising is as old as the hills. It takes real focus to do it well. Um, that's going to be our goal. And I think as we focus, uh, you'll see us expanding the number of suppliers we have. You'll see us focus on the customers that we're focused on. Uh, and all of that will lead to our home furnishing business, overstock.com continuing to be the engine that drives overstock the greater business. 
that's perfectly summed up. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time with us today and uh, for sharing your insight. Bill, thank you, and let's do it again. Well, um, my guest has been Jonathan Johnson, CEO of Overstock.com. I'm Bill McLaughlin with On the Record. Thank you for joining us.